You are listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.riversideconnect.org. We've been talking lately about the reverberations we are still feeling today from the impact that Jesus made in the world. And the resurrection is God's exclamation point at the end of a real-life story that shook the world. And we've been talking about how Christ has changed the world, changed culture. The value we place on humility comes from seeing the humility of God in the person of Jesus, in his birth and in his death. We, we understand the value of compassion because we see that Jesus reached out to the least of these. We, we see the value of, of, of this education and teaching because Jesus taught with such authority and, and taught for transformation. We, we see the way that Jesus elevated human dignity and because of that we believe that God created all people equal. And so we, have, we are experiencing it whether we know it or not in our culture today because of the life and the death and the resurrection and the impact that Jesus made on us. And, and what that does is it inspires us. And that's what I want to talk about today, how, how Jesus inspires us. And I, my prayer for you today is that you would be inspired. John Ortberg writes, he says, everybody wears an unseen sign that reads, inspire me. Remind me that life matters. Call me to my best self. Appeal to whatever is in me that is most noble and honorable. Don't let me go down the path of least resistance. Challenge me to make my little life something about more than the acquisition of money or success. Conversely, he says, I don't want to I don't want you to let me go down the path of least resistance. I don't want to lead an uninspired life. I don't want to just go through the motions to forget that my children are worth all the effort that I can make to be a good dad, to be a good parent to them. I don't want to fail to do good just because, to to work because, or to be good just because it's work or it's hard to do. I don't want to live life as if it doesn't matter. One of the greatest tragedies in all the world is to live an uninspired life. And I just believe that there are way too many of us that are doing that. Just getting up every day, going through the motions, going to bed and waking up and repeating day after day and wondering what's it all about, Charlie. So my prayer today in this resurrection day is that you'll leave here inspired to just rise above. To rise above. To break free from whatever it is that's holding you back. To embrace the kind of life that the resurrected Christ came to help you live. And that's my prayer. That's my prayer. Nobody has ever inspired the human race the way that Jesus did. But you know what? It didn't look like it was going to turn out that way. I mean, if you remember the events of that last week of Jesus, let's think about that for just a moment. Chaos and confusion really ruled the day back then. Last week we talked about that, that Last Supper on Thursday. And Jesus washed the disciples' feet, showed them the full extent of his love, and he demonstrated the utmost humility in taking on the form of a slave and washing their feet. He broke the bread and he passed the cup. And then after that, after that night, early in the morning, Friday morning, late Thursday night, 
While the disciples slept, Jesus was agonizing in prayer. And then their sleep was shattered by torches and voices and a kiss of betrayal and then an arrest. Then there were accusations and interrogations and charges were laid against him and Pilate was unswayed and Herod deflected the decision and the crowd selected and Barabbas was released. And then shortly thereafter, Jesus was deceased. Saturday, the stone was in place. His body laid to rest. Darkness surrounded him and surrounded the disciples as they hid. We see that followers were hiding. They were talking about resigning. The women were preparing the spices for his anointing. And then that Sunday morning, the women were first. The body wasn't there. An angel announces, he's not here, he's risen, go tell the others. The women were confused, they were still gripped with fear. And their questions outnumbered the answers that day. Their hope was mixed with doubt. And, and Jesus would appear to some, and then he would appear to many. And he told them to tarry in Jerusalem for the promise that he was going to send, that he was going to send them. And then he, he ascended into heaven, he disappeared. And they waited. Who was this guy? They didn't know. They didn't understand it all back then. Things didn't go down the way that they expected. He wasn't who they thought he was, but what was he risen from the dead? They weren't sure. And then we see that the resurrection started to to become more clear to them because Pentecost came and, and that lit a spark, that lit a flame that spread like wildfire as they gathered together and studied and thought about what Jesus said and thought about the events of that day. And the story of the resurrection just started to be told and Peter preached and people believed and, and the news spread and then persecution came down and the resurrection story spread throughout the region as the people were running from the persecution. And over time, over time, the light dawned on them and the inspiration became clearer and clearer. And today I want us to turn to a passage of scripture that was written by the Apostle Paul about 25 years after the resurrection. But in this passage of scripture, we see the clearest description of who Jesus was, the highest words that are used in the scripture of Christ's divinity and all that he was. So if you have your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Um, I just want to remind you that if you uh, haven't downloaded the Riverside app yet, you can do that. And every Sunday we put notes in there under the live event. And you can follow along as we preach and you can turn to the Bible app that's in there too to turn to your scriptures. But, but here's the Apostle Paul. And if I can remind you, Paul was one of the early persecutors of the church. He was not a believer in Jesus when Jesus walked this earth when Jesus was crucified. In fact, he was one of the very first that was assigned the job of stopping this rumor that he rose from the dead. And he was going around trying to put a lid on this fire that was spreading throughout Jerusalem. And when we see the first martyr that faced Stephen, it was the Apostle Paul who gave the order for Stephen to be killed. And then one day he was going to Damascus to do the same because the people were running and scattering. And so he was going to go there and stop it before it spread any further. And it was there on the road to Damascus that he was hit by a bright light that blinded him. 
And as his vision returned, he began to see more clearly than ever before, not just with his natural eyes, but with his spiritual eyes of who this Jesus was that he was persecuting, who spoke to him and said, why, why, Saul, Saul, are you persecuting me? And he saw the light. And because of that, he helped us to see who Jesus was more clearly. And so we see these words that he wrote to one of those little churches that, uh, that were started by him on one of his first missionary journeys in the town of Colossae, which is now with Asia Minor, now the, the country of Turkey is. And I want you to look here, Colossians 1, verse 13 and 14. And this is really right in the middle of a prayer that he prays for the people. And he says about this about Jesus. He has rescued us. Think about this. He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, and he transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, who he purchased, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. This is who this Jesus was. Think about that. Because of Jesus, I am no longer bound by darkness. Isn't that amazing? Can you say that? Because of Jesus, I am no longer bound by darkness. Because Jesus bore my sin, Paul's saying, I am forgiven. Because evil could not hold him down, Paul says, I now can be free. And then he goes on to write these, which are, is written in a poem, and some of the most um, eloquent words inspired in this artistic way to describe all that Jesus was. And this was the clarity that was coming to the church over this time period. Verse 15, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over... Who was this person, Jesus? He wasn't just a man. He was there over all creation, for through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. And he made the things that we can see and the things that we can't see such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers, authorities in the unseen world. And everything was created through him and for him. He goes on. He existed before anything else. And he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He's the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. He is the first in everything. For God, in his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself, and he made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Wow. Who was this person, Jesus? I don't think you could speak in more superlative terms than what we find here in this highest Christological statement in Scripture. It's not the last time a human being was so inspired by Jesus that they would feel the need to express it artistically. I want to refer to some of those today, or we could be here forever if I went to all of them. But look at what he says here. I want to to talk about these just a little bit. Four things I want to say. First of all, Jesus is our icon. That's the word he uses, the image of God. The image there, the word for image in the Greek is icon. What's an icon? An icon is like a picture. It's a picture of God. In fact, Eugene Peterson in the message put it this way. He said, we look at this sun and we see the God who cannot be seen. 
What's God like? Look at Jesus. And when people saw Jesus, they saw God differently than they ever had before. Because nobody portrayed God the way Jesus portrayed God. Because that's the big question. Does God exist? And if he does, what is he like? And we know God is spirit. But in one brief moment of time, God became Jesus so that God could be made known to us. And even Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. When God wanted to to speak definitively to the human race, he didn't put it on gold tablets. He didn't put it in a book. He became a person. He became a baby. He displayed God's humility, God's care. God's, God's concern, God's suffering. He, he portrayed God in a way that the world had never seen. And because of that, he, dis, he inspired devotion like nobody else in history. He inspired people to follow him. He's walking along the shore one day, and he sees Andrew and Peter fishing. He sees James and John fishing. He says, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And, and they left their livelihood behind. They, they left what they knew to step into what they didn't know because Jesus so inspired them and helped them to believe that life is more than what they were about at that moment. And they followed him. And you know what? Jesus is still making that invitation to people. He's still inviting us to live for something bigger than ourselves. He's still inviting us to live for something more than a paycheck. He's inviting us to live for something more than the stuff that we could accumulate and put around us and count to see if we're better than others. He's inspired us to live for something bigger than our own little lives. And they followed him. He inspired people so so deeply That's why Jesus has become the most followed, the most admired, the most sung about, the most painted, the most sculptured, the most recognizable figure in all of human history. Why? Because he is the icon of God. He is the image of the invisible God. And the message of Jesus would inspire the world in such a way that they could believe that there was a God who transcends space and time, eternity, and and gets close to us because Jesus brought God close. Jesus brought God close. I mean, the Roman gods and the Greek gods, they were powerful. They were fearsome, but they weren't personal. They weren't loving. No one ever sang, Zeus loves me, this I know, for the Iliad tells me so. (laughs) Jesus brought God close. And, and Ortberg says, whenever someone says, I believe in a God of love, that is an echo of the Nazarene. Whether they believe in Jesus or not, they believe that God is a God of love. The idea that God is a God of love originated in the person of Jesus Christ. And we're still feeling that in our world today. That's why a composer named Johann Sebastian Bach, who had a difficult life. He lost his wife and he lost three of his children. They were very young. He was so devoted to God that on every piece of music he wrote, he put these three words or these three letters and sometimes wrote them out in words, S-D-G. And they stood for the Latin word, Soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. All of his music 
was to the glory of God. When you hear Bach, every piece of music you hear of his is inspired and is for the glory of God. Yezu, joy of man's desiring. One of the lines in there, holy wisdom, love most bright, drawn by thee, our souls aspiring, soar to uncreated light. I, I, I get carried away when I listen to inspired music like that. Here's the point. Jesus, the untarnished image of the unseen God, inspires me to mirror God's selfless love because I see God of love in him. It makes me want to be like him and to mirror Christ to the world around me, to reflect his love to others. Secondly, Jesus is our creator. Notice what he says here in verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Think about that. This person that came in the form of a baby lived before. He existed prior to that. This is a, this is a profound thought. John's gospel, which was written after Paul's writings, begins with these words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Are you ever inspired by creation? Anybody ever inspired by creation? This morning was sunrise service up at the Oakmont Country Club. And I was up there as I go every year, rain or shine or snow or sleet, like the mailman. I'm up there on, and today was a glorious day. I'm telling you, I was inspired by two things up there today. One was the sun rising up and celebrating Christ's birth. The other was a golf course, I got to admit. <laughs> inspires me. Golf inspires me too. But that was just, I can't help but get inspired by God's creation. If anybody's a member, I'd love to play. Never mind. Don't, don't hear that. <laughs> God, forgive me. Forgive me. That, that was not in my notes. That was just, just a moment of inspiration right there. <laughs> the spirit, the spirit speaking? No. John Calvin said, there is not one blade of grass. There is no color in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice. After a winter like we had, oh, this spring makes me rejoice. Albert Einstein said this, in the view of such harmony in the cosmos, which I, with my limited human knowledge, human mind, am able to recognize there are yet people in this... Let me read that again. In the view of such harmony in the cosmos, which I, with my limited human mind, am able to recognize, there are yet people who say there is no God. Interesting. Louis Pasteur said, The more I study nature, the more I stand amazed at the work of our Creator. I look at creation and I can't help but think... God is good. God is beautiful. God is awesome. God is powerful. But not only do I get inspired by creation, I think Jesus, our creator, inspires creativity. Don't you? 
I think Jesus inspires creativity and so much art, so much invention, so much creation, so much is done because of the inspiration of God through Jesus in the world today. In fact, so much art, I, I am anxiously anticipating. Teresa and I are celebrating our 35th anniversary this year and we've been saving our pennies and with the help of a gift from the church to added to that, we are going on a bucket list trip and we are going to see some of the most beautiful art, much of which sacred art in Rome and Florence as we go this summer in a couple of weeks or a couple of months we're going. Isn't that exciting? One of the things I can't wait to see. Thank you. Thank you. And no, you cannot come. Nope. It's just for us. But one of the things I want to see is, is Michelangelo's creation on the, uh, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. I can't wait to see it. I've seen it so many times in pictures, but to see it in person can't wait. Who was this Jesus? Who was this Jesus? His message, his life, his death, his resurrection, grip artistic imagination of the human race like no other story in history. One Yale professor put it this way. He said, the victory of Jesus over the gods of Greece and Rome was responsible for a massive and magnificent outpouring of creativity that is without parallel in the entire history of art. This Jesus, who holds the whole world in his hands, inspires both creativity and respect for God's awesome creation. Are you feeling expired yet? Are you feeling, not expired, inspired yet? <laughs> Maybe expired too. Two more. Jesus, notice this, verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. Wow. It's not just that he made everything. He created this like, like a top, you know. He created the, the universe and just, you know, spun it and let it go. He holds it. He sustains it every moment, from one moment to the next. The only reason creation keeps on existing and is being sustained in this superlative statement is it's being held by Jesus. And part of what this means, think about this. Not only does he hold the world together, the universe together, he holds your life together. He holds your life together. Sometimes we say, man, I feel like my life's falling apart. I feel like I'm coming to pieces at the seam. You, you, life is bigger than us. I look around this room and I've been around many of you long enough to remember moments in your life when it was falling apart and you didn't think you'd make it through. You weren't sure. You were afraid. And I see you here today. And I want to tell you, when life is bigger than you and it's bigger than all of us, when it gets out of control for all of us, you can depend on the fact that Jesus is holding you together and he's holding it all together for you. And I don't know what you're going through right now, but he's holding it together for you, Georgie. He's holding it together for all of you in this place as you face things that are bigger than you. Albert Durer, you may not know who he is. He painted a pair of hands that you will recognize and that became famous. There's a story behind this painting of the praying hands. No one knows for sure if it's true, but it expresses 
a deep spiritual truth. Durer was from a large, poor family, and he was the third of 18 children, but he was very gifted at art, but too poor to go to art school. And he had a friend, maybe it was a brother, who, who was also gifted, and they made a pact to one another. One of them would go work in the mines and pay for the art school for the other. And so his friend or his brother went to work in the mines so Durer could go to art school. And there in art school, quickly, he was better than most of his teachers, and he succeeded at art to the point where he was able to sell art and make money. And after several years, he went back to the village where he's from, and he was going to pay for his friend to now be able to go to art school. But when he got there and was back home, his friend had been working so hard in the mines, his hands were too messed up to be, even hold, to be able to hold a paintbrush. And so what he did was he painted his hands in prayer because he saw his friend who had prayed for him so many times. And so when you see these hands, it's to remind you that you may not know it, but sometimes somebody is praying for you. How many of you can think back? There was somebody praying for me. There's somebody, there's somebody praying for me. Jesus is praying for me. Jesus, who holds everything together, can hold me together when my life is falling apart. And he can hold you together. And look back over your life and you can remember times when somebody was praying for you. Do you pray for people? Do you remember people in prayer? Don't forget. You might say, well, I can't do anything for God. Yes, you can. You can talk to God. You can pray for people. Lastly, Jesus is our leader. It says he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The disciples left everything to follow Jesus. He touched their lives. No one else had ever touched their lives as he had. No one ever loved them the way that he loved them. No one ever showed them the full extent of love and what love was all about and caring for the least of these and all that he did. And now he's alive again. They see him on that first Easter and they see him in a new way. The first words that were spoken to the disciples were, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. He is not here. He's risen. Come and see the place where he was. And then until then, they saw Jesus as just another person. But on that day, they started to see Jesus differently. Confused, doubting, fearful. Yes, yes, yes. But Jesus continued to meet with them. Peter had denied Jesus. But did that keep Jesus from going to Peter and letting him know that it's okay, Peter? I still have a plan for you. Thomas doubted Jesus. But did that make Jesus say, well, you doubt me. I don't have anything to do with you. No, he went to Thomas in spite of his doubts. And I want you to know, because he came to them, they who are bound behind locked doors and in fear, Jesus appeared to them and they broke out of their darkness. And they came out and they began to follow Jesus. And their fears and their doubts did not keep them back because they were converted to seeing that Jesus was more than who they thought he was. And so Jesus, who knows my fears, because I sometimes am afraid, and he understands my doubts, because sometimes I doubt, is still inviting us to come and follow him. 
He inspires me to have courageous faith. And it wouldn't take faith if we didn't have doubt and we didn't have fear. That's what faith is all about. And so I don't have all the answers, but I believe that this Jesus who rose from the dead and changed the world can still change my life. And because of that, he's our reconciler. The last thing I want to say, I said that once, I know, don't worry about that. Notice the last verses. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him to reconcile all things to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Jesus, through the cross and the resurrection, made things right. The events of that Passion Week tell us that evil is defeated when it is allowed to expend itself in all of its demonic fury on the very thing which it hates, which is the source of all good, Jesus. When the servant of the Lord, in his death on the cross, all of hell's fury was let loose on him. Theologian N.T. Wright says that the cross was the victory of weakness over strength, the victory of love over hatred. It was the victory that considered, consisted in Jesus's allowing evil to do its worst to him and never attempting to fight it on its own terms. And when the power of evil had made its last possible move, Jesus had still not been beaten by it. He bore the weight of the world's evil to the very end and he outlasted it. Wow. That's what C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe calls the deeper magic from the dawn of time. God defeating evil by absorbing it all and outlasting it, by making peace through his blood that was shed on the cross. There is now one image, one symbol, one shape that adorns more art, that marks more graves than any other image on earth, and that's the image of the cross. I'm going to invite the band to come and take their places, and we're going to celebrate in just a moment But let's talk about what Jesus has done. Who was this man, Jesus? Who was the source of these reverberations that we're still feeling today? Well, we know him as the man that was on the cross. But we also know him as the maker of the universe. He was the creator, but he's also the sustainer. He's the ruler over every power. No matter how big it looks to you, there's one bigger still, and that's Jesus. He is the image of God, the icon. He's the fullness of God. He's the wisdom of God. He is the presence of God. He is the death defeater. Who was this Jesus? He was the sin conqueror. He was the guilt obliterator. He was the final sacrifice. He's the blood giver. He is the cross bearer. He is the tomb breaker. He is the peacemaker. Who was this Jesus? He was the head over his body, the church. He is the reconciler of all things. He is the maker, the redeemer, the savior, the forgiver, our Lord, our friend, our guide, our shepherd, our hope for all eternity. And his name was Jesus. Bow your heads with me. Lord, thank you. Jesus, 
We love you. May the resurrected power of Jesus inspire us today to live for you something far bigger and better than ourselves. Give meaning and purpose to all of us in this room. Thank you that we're a part of what you're doing in the world today. God, I just pray that you will hold us together, sustain us, lead us, guide us, and direct us, and inspire us to our greatest self. Because of Christ that is in us, we can live for you. God, we love you and bless you. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you for listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.riversideconnect.org.